0: you 're listening to the queensland brain institute 's lecture series this lecture is presented by Professor Elliot Sher on the topic of autism progress in understanding the genetics so um, we 're going to talk about um, some some basic ideas about what autism is what and then i 'm going to try to address what causes autism or rather i 'm going to focus on the genetics of what causes autism because I uh, uh, beyond uh, uh, that, we could we could spend multiple hours discussing, um, and then I'm going to give one example of how um, having a genetic diagnosis allows us to begin to um, tease apart the molecular mechanisms that might be driving the disorder, and then talk a little bit about future directions. So, when when you think about autism, or, or when I think about autism, I think of it not as a, uh, a specific condition, um, but rather as a collection of behavioral challenges. And so autism is a, a behavioral diagnosis. Um, most recently, uh, a couple years ago, the uh, clinicians um, in the psychiatry community uh, modified the definition. And so this is reflected here um, in the diagnosis that I'm, uh, or the diagnostic terminology that I'm giving you. So the first thing is, is persistent deficits in social communication um, and social interaction. And that's across uh, lots of different contexts. So for instance, if you happen to be anxious about public speaking, uh, that wouldn't give you an autism diagnosis. Thank goodness. Um, in addition to though the, that uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortableness or that inability to master social situations, um, individuals with autism have often restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior or interests or activities. So, um, the, the, the young boy who is, is only interested in Thomas the tank engine, um, or, you know, um, the, the the person who is only, uh, as I know, uh, one child is only interested in, in the roller coaster rides that he can go on all around the country and he knows every single place where he can go on them and he knows the weight limits for each of them um, and, and he has a very restricted um, and, and specific interest in that. Um, and the idea is that these symptoms are present from very early on in life. Um, they may become more manifest as the demands of interaction increase as as the child ages, but usually our thinking is is that they're there from a very early age. And there's a, quite a bit of literature on trying to understand when autism can first be recognized. But uh, we'll, if you have questions about that, we're going to try to address that later. Um, and then um, it's important that these that these issues that I've raised actually have clinical consequences. So, again, there are lots of people who have, you know, just to go back to the interests of the little boy, um, interest in baseball cards. Um, lots of those boys uh, maintain those interests in baseball cards for quite some time. Some of them become news uh, sports broadcasters. Um, but others give up that interest when they get you know, when they find girls more interesting. And the other thing that I will say that I have some personal um, questions about is this last piece, which is that part of the issue of clinical diagnostics is that you, you, it, you um, often that people want to give you one diagnosis and not many. And so this last one, E, is basically saying that what you have cannot be better explained by something else. And the, the two main ones that they're interested in are intellectual disability and global developmental delay. So what they're saying is is that if you have cognitive challenges and it's across the board, including in social domains, um, that that alone would not give you an autism diagnosis, that your social domain deficits should be more exaggerated than the rest of your challenges. And i 'll just personally say that I think that I would disagree with that i didn 't i wasn 't the one on the committee making this up, um, so we 'll leave it at that and Another way to think about autism is sort of a, a functional model um, in my little um, pyramid here let 's see if I can there we go um, so we start at the top here where you know which is what we observe you know if this was an iceberg and everything else was below the waterline, you you observe the clinical manifestations of autism. And then the other thing that you can observe or that we um, as clinicians can observe is how somebody performs um, on a clinical test. So there's something called the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observational Scale, so it's it's a it's an interview style analysis that takes about one hour um, and it allows you to qualitatively estimate one's, um, one's risk of having autism. And then underneath that, we have the things that we're going to spend a little more time talking about, mostly talking about um, the primary causes and again focusing on genetics, but there undoubtedly are environmental interactions that cause um, ASD. And there are gene-by-environment interactions that we think also lead to autism, but we're just beginning to, um, as a field, just beginning to attempt to tackle that. And then um, something that I'm going to talk about a little bit later today is, are there tools, whether these tools are brain imaging tools, whether these tools are um, uh, biochemical uh, tools, can we observe changes in somebody's uh, biology that would allow us to see whether they're at risk for having autism. Okay. So just to talk about some of the basic facts, and, and again, if, you know, if you're an expert in the field, I beg your your patience as we go through some of these more basic things. So how, how heritable is, is uh, autism? Um, so monozygotic twins? Um, depending on, on which article you read, um, the, the risk that if one child has autism, that his or her monozygotic twin would also have autism ranges anywhere from 30 to 90 percent. I think the more recent data um, from large cohorts suggest this is somewhere around 70 to 80 percent. And not surprisingly, if you don't say that the sibling has to have a strict definition of autism, but rather has some of the same challenges but doesn't quite cross that that arbitrary threshold to get an ASD diagnosis, that the concordance goes goes way up. And so that tells you that genetics and intrauterine environment play um, a significant role in autism risk. Um, Sibling risks, again, um, that can be as low as, as 2%. Um, but it can be much higher than 10% and some people um, uh, can have, fa- have published reports where it's as high as 25%. And the genetic architecture, what are the things that account for risk for autism? And those include, and are not limited to, but these three sort of general categories. Common inherited, rare inherited, and de novo. And so by common inherited, I mean genetic changes, that you have, and you know maybe ten percent of the Australian community might have, um, and each one of those risk factors is probably small in terms of its total impact on your risk of developing autism. There are then rare inherited variants, and, and these are often more likely to be contributing more significantly to disease risk, and then finally, uh, de novo, um, meaning new mutations, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through this. Okay. So again, this is this is Genetics 101, and I'm going to move really fast through this, but just to remind everyone who doesn't think about genetics, um, the genome is about 3.1 uh, billion letters of DNA, um, and in that genome is approximately 20,000 genes. The exact number changes every day. Um, and the, the exact number is not super critical, but it's it is sort of the the unit of inheritance. Um, DNA codes for RNA that leads to protein, um, and again, this is all very basic uh, genetics. And the codon, um, which is a three-letter uh, stretch of DNA or RNA sequence, codes for a single amino acid, um, and the, many amino acids strung together make a protein. DNA duplicates by conservative replication of the double-stranded molecule, otherwise known as the double helix, um, and that's what led uh, Watson and Crick to make that seminal discovery back in the 1950s. And so you can see here, schematized, that you have um, chromosomes um, that are in the nucleus of a cell, and these chromosomes are really tightly wound DNA. Um, each chromosome has many, many millions of letters of DNA, and these code for um, RNA that then gets translated into protein. Okay, so there's a genetic code, um, and as I said, there are three letters, um, and there are four kinds of letters, A, C, T, and G, or T and U, depending on on whether we're looking at RNA or DNA. And you can see here that all, all of these combinations of three letters code for different amino acids. So for example, this UUA codes for an amino acid called leucine, and these other four changes can also code for leucine. So leucine can be encoded by six different combinations of these three letters. Um, There are 20 amino acids, so some amino acids only have one of these three-letter codons um, and some of them have many. And there are also codons for um, what's called stopping, so you, you stop making the protein. So when the protein is done being translated, there's a stop codon um, and the, um, the the fully formed uh, protein then gets moved to its its final destination in the cell. Mechanisms of inheritance. So um, one is uh, the most common for uh, recess, known as recessive or autosomal recessive. In this case here, you see the father is a carrier. So um, large R is a is a. Nomenclature for, um, a, a normal unaffected gene and the, a lowercase letter is often referred to as, as a recessive allele, meaning one that can, um, encode for disease susceptibility. So the idea is, is that somebody who carries one of each copy is just a carrier and is, is not clinically affected. And that's not entirely true in, in certain circumstances, but for simple recessive conditions, that's the case. And so you have the mom here who's also a carrier, and the mom and dad can have sperm and, and egg, and the sperm and egg each carry only one copy instead of the two that they have um, throughout the rest of their body. And those single copies can then be um, inherited down to their children. And so you can have a child that has two what we call um, a, a wild-type or, or um, uh, you know, unaffected alleles. You can have the same genetic combination that mom and dad have where they're carriers, and then you can also have a child who has two of these recessive alleles um, and would have the clinical condition. And so, for example, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, um, these are just two common examples, or phenylketonuria, where um, a recessive allele um, is only... um, affected or only affects the child when they have two of those. Okay. In converse you can have something called autosomal dominant and in that case um, you can have both an affected allele um, and an unaffected allele. And so in in this case here I'm just designating it as A prime or A star and then A. And so that means that you have a 50% chance that this a star would get passed down to one of your children. And so this individual is affected. um, And um, he or she, doesn't matter for this case, has one, two, three, four, five, six children. And they have offspring uh, of their own, as you can see here. Um, But there are three affected individuals of the six. So 50%, which is what you would predict. And then those individuals can have children. And again, it's going to be approximately 50 percent. So you can see here there's five and three, a total of four affected individuals. But this family only had, uh, rather had three out of five, so slightly higher than 50 percent. This one had one out of three, so only 33 percent. And you could in theory, you know, obviously have ten children in a row and have all affected or you could have ten children in a row and have all unaffected. And so some of this is by by chance. Okay, let's just skip over that for a sec. Okay, so what is a mutation? Um, A mutation is a genetic change that has negative consequences. And there are lots of different kinds, but I'm going to talk about just a few right here. One is called a nonsense mutation, one is a missense mutation, Um, and then there are mutations that involve removal, deletion, or duplication, addition of DNA, and that there are others outside of the genes themselves that I'm I'm not going to spend much time on today. And then there are, in addition to genetic changes that are pathogenic, there are changes that aren't necessarily negative and may actually have positive influences, and we refer to them as polymorphisms. Each one of us has approximately, um, at least of the single nucleotide kind, three million letters of DNA that vary um, between us and other individuals in the general population. So obviously if you have a a sibling, you're going to have a high percentage of shared variants, and your mom or your dad, you're going to share half of your genetic changes, but if you happen to you know, walk down the street and meet somebody who's a friend of yours, you may share a couple hundred thousand of those variants. And if you both are from the same part of the world um, many generations ago, you might share even more. Conversely, if, you know, one of you is from one part of the world and uh, the other is from a a different part of the world where your ancestors are from, you may have a full three million of those variants that are different between you and the rest of the, and, and, and your friend. Okay. And so we can, anyway, I'll just move on. That's too too complicated. All right. So let's talk about nonsense mutations. So nonsense just means that instead of a an amino acid showing up where you expect it, that you have a stop, a stop codon. So basically telling the cell to stop making the protein um, early. And so those are these stop codons here. And you can see um, that there are um, these, these three different uh, stop codons. Um, and you can also see that if you mutate tryptophan at that one nucleotide there from a G to an A, that that will become a stop codon. And if you mutate this UGG to UAG, again, just one letter changing, you go from an amino acid to a stop codon. And the same thing goes for some of these other nucleotides as well. This this tyrosine, again, if you mutate just one letter, a UAU to a UAA, it becomes a stop codon. So that's how, with just the subtlest of changes in your DNA, you can change from making a protein that that's normal and healthy to making a protein that's pathogenic. Okay. And you can also make what we call missense mutations. And these are mutations where the nucleotide changes and it gives you a different amino acid. So instead of creating an early stop, it switches it from one amino acid to another. So for example, um, isoleucine um, is only one letter different from methionine. So AUG If you just change the G to an A, you have AUA, so that's isoleucine, AUC, and AUU. All three of those, just that one last letter, can change the amino acid. Similarly here, if you have AUG and you change it to ACG or AAG or AGG, so again, the middle letter changes, just one letter changes, and you have a different amino acid. And then finally here is the last letter changing, so instead, or rather the first letter changing. So instead of AUG, you get UUG, CUG, or GUG. So again, one single letter of DNA is all you need to make a fairly significant change. Okay, just skip over that. All right, so de novo genetic mutations. So I, I spent some time talking about recessive alleles where it's inherited from mom and dad equally, dominant alleles where it's inherited from mom or dad, um, but that that, that is um, directly inherited. And then there's de novo genetic mutations. So it's a mutation that just occurs in that person. It's not inherited. It's typically something that occurs in the egg or the sperm, either when the sperm or egg are formed or um, oftentimes, immediately after fertilization. And this de novo mutation, this new mutation, can either be just a single letter of DNA, or it can be a, a stretch of DNA. And I'll talk about an example of that in just a moment. Um, there is evidence that these genetic changes are more commonly occurring in, in older parents. So, for example, probably many of you know about the increased risk of Down syndrome when um, the mothers are um, older, typically older than 40 years of age. And the same thing goes for men, that that the men are more likely to um, uh, have a child who has a a genetic change um, if the man is over 50, because the sperm um, acquire mutations over time. And I've listed down here just three examples of different conditions Down syndrome that I just mentioned, but also Prader-Willi, where a small chromosomal change leads to the condition, and Dravet syndrome, a a, a particular kind of severe epilepsy where literally a single letter of DNA change is enough to cause that condition. Okay. Um, This is just a picture of what chromosomes look like. Um, You can look at chromosomes under the microscope by treating the cells in a certain way. And these little stretches here, these bands, um, form depending on how uh, densely packed the DNA is. But the idea is that from this end here, from one telomere to another telomere, um, is about 100 or 200 million letters of DNA. And so each one of these bands contains contains many millions of letters of DNA packed in tightly. And we can use tools, as in what I've talked about here, a microarray to look for deletions um, in, in a particular stretch of the chromosome. So you can see here, I've diagrammed it with this little red line. Each one of these dots is a particular place in that chromosome. And I'm asking, are there two copies? Um, And if, if there are two copies, the dot will be at zero. And you can see that most of the dots are around zero. But if there are one extra copy, then it would be above this green line. And you can see that virtually none of the dots are above the green line. But if it's um, below, if it's missing, it's going to be somewhere in the range of negative 0.5 to negative 1. And you can see that there's a stretch here where it's deleted. And so that tells you that that area is deleted. Um, and um, for, you know, for those of you who don't do genetics but are um, thinking about biology, you know that um, there's going to be what's called oops, a loss of heterozygosity and that's what you see here. You don't see any of them um, showing up as both alleles in the middle, but rather you see only one allele or only the other allele. Um, And that's just another way of confirming that there's really a a deletion. Okay. In addition to um, chromosome analysis, a new tool has um, become available in the last five-ish years called whole exome sequencing. So as I said, there are about 3 billion letters of DNA, about 1%, about 30 million or slightly more, 40 million letters of DNA comprise the actual genes themselves because the, the genes only make up a small percentage. Um, when I was a graduate student, um, sequencing one stretch of DNA that was 300 bases long um, would take a day. Um, or you could maybe do many 300 base pair fragments at a time. So you could maybe do, you know, 20 of them in one day. And so that was very slow going. Um, But now you can use these advanced tools to sequence up to hundreds of millions of um, letters of DNA in in, um, in a single run, which takes about three to four days. So we can now use these tools to sequence... All of somebody's genes um, in in, in a matter of you know in a matter of a few days' time, um, which which was impossible until very recently. Okay. So how is this how is this translated into clinical uh, changes? So what I've listed here are different conditions when uh, they were identified and when the genetic discovery occurred. So Down syndrome was described in the 1800s, and the genetic discovery of it being a trisomy, an extra chromosome, didn't happen until 1959, so a considerable lag time. And it was, as you look down here, all these different conditions, you can see that there's a shorter and shorter lag time. Um, and these were all identified by more conventional approaches, um, not the whole exome sequencing. And so what you see here is um, a result of what's happened with the advancement of genetic tools. So just if we focus on this top one here, which is the total number of genes identified, you can see that in around 1990 there was a significant change, and then it's it's gone even more dramatic over the last uh, 10 years in terms of the number of genes that are involved in genetic disorders, in particular intellectual uh, disability genes. So there are now over 700 genes that are known to cause intellectual disability and that was actually in 2015, that's probably now um, uh, uh, at least 100 genes out of date. And what does that mean clinically? That means that if a child comes to a, a developmental pediatrician um, or a, a, a child neurologist, and they're interested in understanding the genetic cause or to see if there is a genetic cause for their child's condition, that the diagnostic yield, which used to be below 10% for many, many years and then bumped up to about 10 to 15%, has had a huge increase in the last 10 years to where over half of the individuals who are clinically affected can have um, a diagnosis uh, determined. Okay. And another way of of, of viewing this information is by looking at the cost of genetic sequencing. So I presume that many of you have heard of the term Moore's Law. That refers to uh, an idea that Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, came up with, which is that computing power would double um, every 18 months. And so what that meant is that the cost of computing um, uh, or the you know, the, the number of dollars per, uh, you know, megabase, or sorry, megabyte, mix up my genomes with my, um, computers, but that the cost of, of owning a powerful computer would drop dramatically, or as what typically happens, the cost stays the same, but the power dramatically increases. And obviously doubling, one doubling is not very much in 18 months, but as you all know, the geometric expansion of going two by two by two rapidly leads to significant change. And so this line would be how fast things would improve if genetics obeyed Moore's law. And you can see that that's pretty wimpy by comparison to what's actually happened. Um, And there's been a huge drop-off um, starting in around 2007, and that's when this, this next generation sequencing, this whole exome sequencing that I've outlined, became um, available, and there's just been a dramatic explosion um, in the ability of clinicians and scientists to interrogate uh, DNA. Okay, so I want to come back to the genetics of autism. Um, what people have been doing is they've been recruiting families, uh, you typically a mother um, and a father and, and an affected child and sometimes also an unaffected sibling. Um, and they've been doing whole exome sequencing on many hundreds or even many thousands of individuals with the idea that they will find um, a genetic condition that is highly penetrant, and most likely de novo, meaning, again, as I've said, a mutation that's just in the child and not in mom and dad. And using that, um, uh, uh, colleagues of mine, this is this is a work from um, Brian O'Rourke um, and Evan Eichler um, and their whole team, where they were sequencing many thousands of individuals. And what this is showing is the observation of the discovery of these de novo mutations. So the genes that are in blue are genetic mutations that occur in siblings. So that means that everyone has a certain rate of genetic mutation that occurs, but that they don't seem to occur repeatedly in the same genes in the siblings. They just seem to randomly occur spread out throughout the entire genome. Um, whereas in individuals who have autism or have other neurodevelopmental disorders, we see that there's an, an unmistakably increased risk of mutations in certain genes. And so the genes that are in red are the genes that are found in, in the individual who has autism. And all the ones that are above this dotted line are all likely to be um, new genetic causes of autism. Um, And I'm not going to dwell on these for for a long time, but just to mention that um, one of the things that we see in in autism, in a lot of individuals with autism, is an elevated head size. And um, two of the most significant um, new genes found are um, this one here called P10 and this one here called CHD8. So P10 had been previously seen um, for other reasons. But again, associated with a big head, um, and CHD8, when it was discovered, it was also determined that individuals who had mutations in this gene had a larger head. So already um, this kind of information gives us potential insight into some of the biology behind autism. Okay. So with all of that information that's been exploding, where do we stand now in, in 2017? And what I've outlined here are some of the sort of the, you know, the pies, the contributions of different kinds of genetics to autism. And so the largest one, we think, is still a mixture of inherited mutations where any given mutation, um, does not convey a lot of risk. So that's something where mom and dad, um, each one of them contributes, uh, It's not that they do it voluntarily but it just happens from their DNA uh, leading to to a risk for autism. Um, There are these categories here where these are more single genetic changes, whether that genetic change is literally a single letter of DNA or whether it's what we call a copy number variant which means a, a stretch of the chromosome that's either deleted or duplicated. Okay. Are we doing on time? Yeah, all right. So, um, what I want to talk about now. So um, now this is the second half of the Scientific American article, and I'm going to move a little bit more quickly through work that um, my lab has done in collaboration with a number of other groups. So I, I was talking briefly about these copy number variants. It turns out that one copy number variant is is commonly seen in autism, and that's a genetic change, it turns out, that can either be a deletion or a duplication in a region on chromosome 16. And the the molecular address of this area is 16P11.2. And we uh, got together with a a number of other investigators and and this project was sponsored by a, a foundation in New York called the Simons Foundation. And the goal of this project was to study everyone who had autism, who had the same genetic change, to see whether we could observe robust changes either in their molecular signature or in their uh, brain imaging or in their behavior that would allow us to better understand this condition. Because what what underlies the the goals of this project is that lots of autism is, is quite heterogeneous, and so there's an, an adage that says that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, which, you know, underlies the, the, the complexity of this, of this um, you know, syndrome. Okay, so how is it discovered? It was discovered simultaneously by, by two groups. Um, where they used these microarray tools that I just showed you earlier, and they tested families where they had mom and dad and an affected child. Um, and so there's a, a group here that's from, um, from uh, Harvard and the Broad Institute, uh, Lori Weiss, who's a colleague of mine now at UCSF, um, and then also uh, Ravi Kumar um, uh, under Sue Christian's direction, who were at the time both at the University of Chicago. So two groups uh, uh published this in the in the same year, um, and so that was quite encouraging, that they were probably on to something potentially quite significant, and it turns out that these deletions um as well as duplications um explain approximately one percent of autism. Another, so another thing that's quite interesting, and for which I don't have a good explanation for you, is that it looks like the duplications are also a risk factor for schizophrenia. So it appears that there may be this kind of um, yin and yang uh, between the two conditions, and a lot of people um, have sort of hypothesized that that might be the case prior to this data coming out. Okay. And so the, the... the Simons Foundation sent, uh, or, or rather created a, a, a presence, a family support organization, um, and a web page so that once um, individuals were diagnosed with this, they could find um, this presence on the web and find out about the services that they offered, as well as opportunities to participate in research. And this kind of family-based method is something that's that's really increasing um, with our discovery of different genetic etiologies. Okay. So again, this is sort of moving quickly into the into the genetics. So here's the location on chromosome 16, and it turns out that this location is this one here that's in between breakpoint four and breakpoint five. And so the genome, it turns out, actually has lots of hot spots for genetic changes to occur. Um, you know, on the one hand, we don't want any mutations to occur because sometimes those can result in disease. The reality, though, is that genetic change is what has accounted and what drives evolution. And so it's kind of, in, in some sort of, um, unfortunate sense, genetic mutations that are deleterious are the, byproduct cost of evolution. And so these areas here are similar to each other in terms of the actual DNA sequence. So this structure here and this structure here are called low copy number repeats. Um, And again, for those of you who are into the the weeds, this is what predisposes this to something called non-allelic homologous recombination that can give you either a deletion or a reciprocal duplication at the same locus. And this locus contains about 29 different genes and there are lots of people all around the world now who are working really hard to understand how these particular genes, when you have only one copy or you have three copies, how that results in autism. Okay, so I'll just skip over that. So what we did, again, is as part of a large collaboration, we enrolled um, over, um, uh, at the time that this was done, it was about um, 80, but we enrolled over 100 uh, patients uh, who have deletions, 100 patients who have duplications. We recruited um, their siblings if we could, um, and we also recruited their adults, uh, their adult uh, relatives. Um, and what this lists is the number of different diagnoses and the percentage that shows up. So now I told you initially that 16P deletion or duplication is um, one of the more common causes of autism, about accounting for 1% of autism. Um, and, I, and I told you that it caused autism. And, and so you would be surprised to discover that if we recruit these individuals not because they have a diagnosis of autism but rather just because they've been identified with this genetic change that not everyone has autism and actually the number is only 26 percent. So one quarter of the individuals um, have autism, that means three quarters of them who have this genetic change don't meet the criteria that I waxed and waned about earlier Um, that that lead to an autism diagnosis. And actually the more common problem is people who have either what we call a phonological processing disorder, meaning their speech articulation, um, both their comprehension of articulation as well as their ability to generate it. Um, And then um, they also have developmental coordination disorder, so somebody who has clumsiness and, and that, can, that clumsiness can be in a gross motor sense, you know, they're walking, jumping, running, or it can be in their use of uh, a fork and a knife or a pencil or things like that. And so what that tells you right away is that even though 25% of these individuals have autism, that the mechanisms that are being disrupted in brain function are are addressing motor coordination, either motor coordination of moving your lips and your tongue in a way that produces a recognizable sound or moving your hand or your, or your legs. Okay. And then another thing that we noticed is that there was a, a shift in, in IQ. So um, what we're looking at here is um, the familial controls in the light blue. So, just as an FYI, IQ average is 100. Um, and so, if you, if you, in theory, selected a random population of, you know, uh, 100 people or 500 people, uh, taking, uh, you know, walking on the street somewhere or, you know, taking a, a trolley car, um, in theory, if you tested them all, the average would be 100. But one thing that you'll notice is that the the Familial controls, meaning the unaffected siblings and and unaffected parents, is the mean is higher than that. It's it's closer to 115. So some of that is is ascertainment. So people who want to, in this case, fly halfway around the country um, to spend a few days with us um, subjecting their poor kids to brain scans and blood tests and lots of other stuff are typically um, And maybe not wise, but they do better on IQ tests. Um, And then if you look at at the carriers of the deletion um, here in um, sort of orange or the duplication, you can see that it shifted over, um, and it shifted over by approximately um, two standard deviations, one and a half to two standard deviations, and so that's about uh, 25 to 30 IQ points. Um, and the other thing that you'll notice, particularly for the duplications, more so than for the deletions, is that there's an increased dispersion of IQs, and so that means that there's a high degree of variability, and um, and that means that some of that might be caused by the actual genetic change, and some of that might be caused by the um, the, ba- the genetic background. But I but I would actually suppose and and you can quiz me about it later, that it's actually the underlying um, uh, change in this deletion-duplication that's causing this increased dispersion. Okay. Um, wait a second. How did this get stuck in here? All right. Well, let's ignore that and come back to that later because that somehow got stuck in the wrong spot. Okay. So we also looked, it, it, again, if I, if I told you uh, before we had phonological processing, motor coordination. And that was um, work that was done by neuropsychologists evaluating the patients. We also had patients uh, being evaluated by neurologists, and they take a slightly different approach, but it, it has overlapping information. So remember I said that in in uh, two of the genetic mutations, uh, P10 and CHD8, that there was macrocephaly. Well, actually, it turns out that a significant percentage of deletion carriers of this 16p locus have macrocephaly. And conversely, um, the duplication carriers have microcephaly. So it's, it's clear that from this work and from other work that the genetics of macrocephaly and microcephaly Um, are also risk factors for autism and that some of a a greater understanding of why the brains are bigger or smaller may give us greater insight into the condition. And then just like um, uh, the individuals uh, having coordination problems, they also had tone abnormalities. So hypotonia means low tone, so somebody who can't stand up straight who slumps over, who doesn't have enough strength when they're younger uh, to peel to pull themselves up to stand um, as, as little babies. And so a clear 50 percent of those individuals had um, hypotonia. But unlike the macrocephaly-microcephaly sort of uh, conundrum of, you know, variation, um, in this case the hypotonia is highly um, identified in, in both groups. And similarly, um, so is um, observed weakness. Um, but there are, uh, as is actually, if you can see down at the bottom here, um, there's an increased risk of seizures in, in both groups. But there is, um, again, a subtle change that's that's present only in one group and not in the other, and that's, um, and that's tremor. So you know, fine movements um, in the hands. Um, and again, I don't know if we know why that is, but it's, it's a robust difference between the two groups. Okay. So in addition to um, doing these behavioral evaluations, we also conducted a brain imaging study. And what this is here is just telling you that we used a technique called FreeSurfer that allows you to, in an automated way, um, measure um, both the size and the surface area and the cortical thickness um, of, of the brains of these individuals. And so when we, we look just at brain volume um, in children and in adults who are deletion carriers in the children and duplication carriers in the adults, you can see that like the macrocephaly and microcephaly that I mentioned, that you see this reciprocal change. That the deletion carriers have larger um, cerebral cortices and the duplication carriers have have smaller ones. And that if you look at other um, findings, that you don't really necessarily see everything being significantly changed. So the thickness, the cortical ribbon, um, is the same in deletion carriers. And although this meets statistical threshold here, it's really barely and we think that that's essentially um, unchanged. Whereas surface area um, does seem to be increased in the deletion carriers and decrease in the duplication carriers, something that we would expect to go along with the macrocephaly and microcephaly. And these changes are uh, pervasive across the brain. Um, If we try to do a, a correction for cortical volume, you can see that there's uh, one area here that shows up um, most robustly, that the thalamus is um, still large and small, um, even above and beyond the total brain volume, um, and that there are some others as well, including the cerebral white matter. Um, The overall take-home message, though, is that all of these areas um, are changed, um, and there's not just a few selected areas. Okay, um, one of the things that uh, Linda Richards and I share in common is an interest in the development of the corpus callosum. Um, And as you can see here, um, I'm showing you uh, a few different kinds of abnormalities in the corpus callosum. So over here in D, um, the corpus callosum, this white structure here, um, this is a a normally developing corpus callosum with an enlarged, what we call genu, a curve at the front end of the brain and then here a splenium of an enlarged posterior part of the corpus callosum. And then here are two different versions where there's a reduction in the size of the corpus callosum. This one is fully formed but thin, and this one is quite small. These two scans are from individuals who have duplications at 16p, and this one here where it's actually thicker. Um, than um, a normal corpus callosum is in an individual who has a deletion at that locus. And we can look at um, the size of the corpus callosum um, in the duplication carriers. And what this is doing is looking at the relative size. So this would be average and this would be decreased. And that the smaller the corpus callosum is in the duplication carriers, the lower the IQ score is. So while that's not predictive, it's not something you can look at and say, well, you're going to have a lower IQ score. It's just not deterministic. It does suggest that changes in brain anatomy can relate to changes that we see in, in, in cognitive abilities. Okay. The next thing that we did is we used a tool called diffusion tensor imaging to measure... Um, the structure of nerve fibers, Um, and so nerve fibers um, have individual um, what are called axons, which are um, um, outgrowths from individual nerve cells, and those are bundled together, and then they're surrounded by by myelin, and so this is just an example of what that looks like um, in a very schematized way. what we're doing is using the MR machine to measure the diffusion of water um, in in these nerve fibers. Um, And when the water moves this way, along the axis of those fibers, um, that's that's its what's called preferred uh, direction of diffusion. um, And that's measured as the axial diffusivity. And then, as you can see here, there can be diffusion up um, or down, or front to back, and that's uh, called radial diffusivity. And then you can calculate a metric, which is the ratio of this axial diffusivity over this radial diffusivity, and that's called fractional anisotropy. And so these terms are used, at, um, at, or these tools are used, as a way to measure the integrity of axons um, in the brain. And then we use a, a, a way to compare these axon tracks between different individuals because, as you might imagine, every person's brain is slightly different, but you want to be able to compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges. And this technique that's called tract-based spatial statistics allows us to measure apples to apples. Um, And when we do that, uh, we can look across the entire brain and point to regions where there's a difference between deletion carriers and controls or duplication carriers and controls and schematize that by showing a color coding um, of the degree of difference. And so, this is the corrected p-value of 0.025 and everything that meets that threshold is displayed here. And so, what that tells you is that individuals who have deletions have increased axial diffusivity have more organized axons than their neurotypical control comparison, um, which is not something that we would have predicted if you just look at the global autism community. Um, But it's something that we see by looking at this specific subgroup of individuals. And then if you look at it not in the deletions but in the duplications, you actually see the inverse. So the fractional anisotropy in individuals who have duplications um, is blue because that means it's less than controls. And you can see if we just kind of go back, this is FA in deletions where it's stronger and global and decrease in um, duplications. And this is uh, Yi um who uh, was the scientist in, in our group uh, who did this analysis. And just like brain volumes, where I showed you there was a correlation with brain volumes and IQ, it turns out that these measures, these um, measures of fractional anisotropy, um, also inversely correlate with um, with IQ. And so, if you have um, more disruption in in cortical um, uh, tracts that connect the different parts of the brain that these are more likely to give you clinical deficits. Okay. I'll just skip over that. Okay. um, Another thing that we'd like to be able to do, um, and we're just getting started on this, is to ask if you scanned a person with uh, um, developmental concerns, could you identify them as as having um, a risk that would end up resulting in autism? identify them early. And so a simpler way to do that is to um, ask, can we differentiate a deletion carrier from a control from a duplication carrier? So this is way simpler because we know that these are genetically homogeneous groups. But it's sort of a first start before we then advance to do more complicated um, uh, biomarker analysis. And so what this is showing you is if you are trying to make this comparison between deletions and duplications, if you just look at demographics, age, um, gender, um, you know, um, and and IQ, that that is completely unpredictive. And you can see that what it does is it gets to a higher degree of fitness and then then drops off very quickly. Um, And then what we did is we looked at either – uh demographics plus volumetrics or plus DTI, um, which is in the green there that's sort of hiding, and then if you include all of them. And so what you're doing is you're using a computer algorithm um, that maximally fits the data um, and, and um, sees how accurately you can predict whether it's a deletion or a duplication. And as you can see here, by using about... Seven or eight features of information that we've acquired. So again, these are volumetric data points and diffusion data points. We get to um, almost a 95% prediction accuracy. Now, this is sort of like, like riding a bicycle. Um, once you do it, it's, it's easy. Um, so, you know, we were, we had enough data where we could make this kind of comparison. The more complicated question is, can we take, um, uh, a mixture of, of ASD individuals and perform the same kind of analysis. Okay, um, in a, five minutes, okay. In addition to um, looking at the structure of the brain and the integrity of the connections, of the physical connections, we also looked at the function of the brain. How did the brain respond? Uh, to various stimuli. So obviously we can do things like IQ tests or measure, as we talked about, phonological processing. But we can also use a tool called MEG, magnetoencephalography, to measure um, electrical activity in the brain. And this is in response to um, a, a single pure tone. Um, and there's usually a a burst of electrical activity in the cortex at about 100 milliseconds after the presentation of that sound. And you can see that this is a a neurotypical individual. You can see the red dotted line and it's occurring almost exactly at 100 milliseconds. And it's, it's listed down here as about 116 is the average. And then we then did the same thing with deletion carriers um, and you can see that there's a dramatic prolongation um, of this what's called M100 to about 140 milliseconds. So what this is saying is that the arrival of information from your ear into your brain where you're going to potentially process speech and and act on it and make your own speech, um, that there is already a 25 millisecond delay. And if you then sort of do some statistics that allow you to, you know, to clean up the data, you can again see here the deletions who are delayed, and then the duplications actually seem to be slightly um, increased. So that it's not necessarily the case that only delay is associated with difficulties. It might actually be that too early of an arrival can can lead to language impairment. And so, what what that allows me to close with is this sort of idea that I've been hinting at all along, but haven't articulated specifically, is that disruption away from the mean um, might be one of the ways by which um, we can observe um, um, impaired um, behavior. So what I've outlined here is that in the middle, um, where you have a normal head size, say not too small or not too big. Um, and that you have a change in, like, say, fractional anisotropy, that if you're in the middle, that that's associated with the least amount of of deficits, but that if you deviate to one side, for example, here, where you have 16P deletion with macrocephaly, or here, where you have 16P duplication with microcephaly, that you can have um, these clinical deficits. Now, this does not explain the molecular mechanisms by which all of this happens, but rather um, because there is this reciprocal uh, change not just in 16P, but in other genetic loci, it suggests that these kind of per- perturbations uh, could be uh, a, a general motif by which um, the brain um, responds. Okay, just in the last two seconds here. Um, Uh, This this work that I talked about, the 16P work, was done by uh, five collaborative sites, UCSF, um, uh, CHOP in Philadelphia, um, University of Washington in Seattle, Baylor um, in in Houston, and uh, Harvard in in Boston. And these are some of the uh, principal investigators who um, made this really, really large and interesting project possible. Um, And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Queensland Brain Institute's lecture series. For more lectures or podcasts, please visit qbi.uq.edu.au podcasts or rate us on iTunes.